very happy to be with you. It's a blessing to study the Word of God together. Can you hear me in the back? We're from different countries, different cultures, ministering to different people. We have different personality. We have different gifts. But I trust we all have the same burden. The glory of God, the advancement of His kingdom, the preaching of the gospel, making disciples, establishing churches, and training other men and women that can do the same. Now, if you're going to do that, there are several foundational realities that must be true in your life. The Apostle Paul mentions them in his instructions to Timothy. Turn with me to 1 Timothy and chapter 4. I'm talking about the two most foundational necessities in your ministry. Now, if you want to study the Word of God concerning ministry, there are several passages you need to be very familiar with. One is Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to about 12, the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. Brothers and sisters, if you want the blessing of God, if you want the power of God, if you want to be used by God, there are two foundational realities that must be true in your ministry. Turn with me, 1 Timothy and chapter 4. 1 Timothy and chapter 4. Very familiar passage. If the Apostle Paul were here today, and he is in this book, this is what he would tell us. Notice beginning in verse 12, exhortations to Timothy as a young man, a young preacher. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to admonition and exhortation. Do not neglect the spiritual gift that is within you that was bestowed through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them that your progress would be evident to all. And the verse we're looking at is verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The two most important things in your ministry is your life and your doctrine. How do we influence people? We influence people by our example and by our teaching. Your life and your teaching must be according to the Word of God. We must have holy character and we must have plain, clear, biblical, correct teaching if we're going to be used and blessed of God. All failures in ministry, many failures in ministry, are a result of a failure in those two areas. Something wrong with the preacher's life, something wrong with his teaching. Now you can have a good life and a good character and be a good example. But if you don't have right teaching, people will be confused. If you have right doctrine, but you don't have a consistent example, people will be confused. What you say and what you do must be the same thing. And so the Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy here, verse 12, the importance of his 
Example, verse 13, the necessity of being biblically based, that is, preaching and teaching the Word of God. Verse 14, he must be a gifted man. That is, he must be called to preach, he must be gifted to preach, and he must have an ability to communicate the Word of God. Verse 15, he must work hard. He can't be lazy. He can't be irresponsible. He must work hard. And verse 16. Listen carefully. Your life and your doctrine are the two most important things. Who you are and what you say. Now there's a lot of people coming up with a lot of new methods in missions and ministry. How to have success how to be fruitful, how to be used by God. Listen carefully. These two realities are the foundation. Who you are and what you teach are the most important things. And if you leave here and forget everything else this old man says, you remember this. Who you are is your first sermon. And what you believe and how clearly you preach it is your second influence. I want to talk to you, first of all, men, about your life. And I want to mention five things. That's a very simple. I want to start at the very foundation. And I want to mention five things that must be absolutely necessary in your life. Don't despise the simplicity of what I'm saying. Many, many people, many, many preachers fall by the way because they neglect these basic realities. Five important things. Now, I'm going to be moving quickly. I'm going to be quoting verses I ask you just to write them down because we may not have time to look at each one of them in detail. But you understand what we're saying. Your life and your doctrine are the most important things. Right now we're talking about your life. We're not only talking about your life, we're talking about the life of the people to whom you minister. They must understand these things as well. Number one, what's the most important thing about your life? You must be truly converted. You must be truly converted. Why do we say that to a bunch of preachers or missionaries? Because as you heard Evan mention the verse this morning, Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not in your name cast out demons? Did we not in your name perform many miracles, but he says, I will say unto you, depart from me, listen carefully, I never knew you. Not that I knew you once, but I don't know you anymore. I never knew you. As we speak today, <coughs> hell is full of preachers. So that's why we're talking about true conversion. Now, when we define true conversion, I first want to just mention quickly what it is not. What true, con true conversion is not. Because there's a lot of confusion. You ask many people, are you converted? They give you a lot of different reasons, a lot of different answers. True conversion, number one, is not being born into a Christian family. That's a great blessing to be born in a Christian family. There's a lot of benefits and a lot of blessings. But there can be a false security. John chapter 8, what did the Jews say? Abraham is our father. They supposed that because they were naturally connected to Abraham and in the covenant of God, that they were therefore circumcised of heart. But Paul said it's not those that are circumcised outwardly, it's those that are circumcised inwardly. And the work of God is in the heart. Listen carefully. It's not being born in a Christian family. Number two, true conversion is not just intellectual understanding of biblical truth. 
You remember what James said, you believe God is one? The demons also believe and tremble. When Jesus walked the earth, they knew who Jesus was. You are the Son of God. You are the promised Messiah. You are the one that is to come. The demons know theology. They know who Christ is. They know who God is. Listen carefully. Intellectual understanding or an ability to say John 3.16 is not salvation. As you heard this morning, the first part of true faith is understanding. There's truth you must understand in order to be saved, but that's not enough. It's not being born in a Christian family. And when you preach to others, you need to make sure they're understanding this. And it's not just intellectual understanding of biblical truth. Quickly, number three, it is not an emotional experience. It is not an emotional experience. Matthew 13, the sower went out to sow the seed. Some received it, some received it with joy. But because they had no root in themselves, they were only temporary. And when persecution and difficulty came from the Word of God, they turned away. People can immediately be excited and emotional about receiving the truth of God, but they may not have the root of true life in them. You remember in Acts 24, Paul preached to Felix, and he preached three things. Righteousness, God is righteous. Judgment, he will judge. Self-control, Felix, you have no self-control. And what did Felix do? He began to tremble. He had an emotional experience, but he wasn't changed. Hear me carefully. Crying tears, having emotional experience, of being deeply moved for a moment is not true conversion. Now that may lead to conversion, but that's not true conversion. Quickly. Number four, true conversion is not a physical healing. Mm -hmm. well, many people think because they were healed that they are therefore saved. Mm -hmm. You remember in Luke chapter 12, 12 uh, lepers came. Mm -hmm. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. And he said, go show yourself to the priest. And when they turned... They were healed and they were cleansed. One of them turned back. He was a Samaritan. He came and fell at Jesus' feet. Jesus said, were there not 12 healed? The other 11, where are they? Is there not one that turned back to give glory to God except this Samaritan? And what did he say to him? Go your way. Your faith has saved you. Now, all of them were healed. One of them was saved. Healing miracles can lead to conversion, but that is not true conversion. And when you preach to people, you need to be as clear and as direct and as accurate as possible as to what is not and what is true conversion. Quickly, number five. I trust you're familiar with all these things and can clearly preach them to others. True conversion is not baptism and joining the church. Acts chapter 8, 9, Philip went down to Samaria and was preaching and he performed miracles and they heard the kingdom of God and the gospel. There was a magician there. What was his name? Simon. And it says Simon, when he saw the signs, listen carefully, Simon believed and was baptized and he joined Philip and the disciples. Hear me carefully. He believed, he was baptized, and he joined the Christians. But you know what Peter said later, when Simon sought to offer money in order to purchase the power of God to perform miracles. What did Peter say? I see you are still presently now in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Your heart is not right with God. You have no part or portion in this matter. He was baptized. 
It says he believed and he joined the Christians, but he was not converted. Now listen carefully. When a man's truly converted, certainly he ought to be baptized. Certainly he ought to associate with believers. But hear me carefully. There's no magic in that water. That cannot wash away sins. Now Peter said, baptism now saves you. What does the rest of the verse say? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That is, it's not the physical act of baptism that saves, but an appeal to God through Jesus Christ for a good conscience in the sight of God. It is saving faith from the heart, not an outward washing of the body. Hear me carefully. Baptism and joining a church doesn't necessarily mean you've been converted. You ask a lot of people, when were you converted? Well, I was baptized back in 99. Or I joined the church back in 2000. Hear me carefully. You have to be a spiritual doctor that is able to use the Word of God as a scalpel uh, to be able to cut people open and help them see the true condition of their own heart. So you cannot be satisfied simply when someone says, I've been baptized, I believe. Very quickly. Sixthly, true conversion is not obedience or doing good works. We heard it this morning. Obedience and doing good works are a consequence of true conversion, not the condition. A consequence, not the condition. It's a certain consequence, not a necessary condition. You understand what we're saying? That is, when a person is truly converted, God gives him a new heart. God gives him a new nature. He becomes a new creature in Christ. He plants the Spirit of God within him, and he slowly but surely begins to grow as a Christian. Like a baby's born, and then he begins to grow. Listen carefully. You're not saved by obedience. That was made clear this morning. It's not your faithfulness and obedience in producing good works that is the condition or the ground or the foundation of your salvation. Lastly, hear me carefully. A lot of people are confused here. True conversion is not asking Jesus into your heart. Now you are familiar with the verse. Jesus said, Revelation 3 verse 20, I stand at the door and I knock. You ask people all over the world, what door is he knocking on? What do they say? He's knocking on the door of a lost sinner's heart. Hear me carefully. This is why Bible interpretation is absolutely crucial. What are the three first rules of Bible interpretation? Context, context, context. Then grammar, that is the meaning of words, and it's what they call syntax, that is how these words fit together with one another. <clears throat> Who's Jesus talking to in Revelation chapter 3? The Laodicean church. What is their condition? They become weak, worldly, proud, and self-satisfied. He says, those whom I love, I reprove, and I discipline. <clears throat> God disciplines his own children. And so he's talking to believers. He's knocking symbolically at the door of the church. He's knocking at the door of the church. And he says, if anyone in there will open the door, I will come in to him. Now listen to these two verses. Satan entered into Judas. Paul 
and the brethren arrived at Jerusalem and went into James. What's the difference of those two verses? Into, one word. Into, two words. Jesus said, I stand at the door of knock, and if any man opens the door, I will come inside the church, and I will come face to face with him and reestablish fellowship with him. And here the grammar and the language is very precise. It means I will come inside the church symbolically and reestablish face to face fellowship with anyone that will open the door of the church. Hear me carefully. Have you ever used Revelation 3.20 and told people all you have to do to be saved because Christ is knocking at the door of your heart? All you have to do is open the door and he'll come in. Uh, I did that for years. But I was wrong. And that door has led to thousands of false converts and weak churches. Now, what's the source of that problem? Bible interpretation. That's why it's important to study context and to know a little bit about how sentences work together. You understand the difference. He's not talking about coming inside a lost sinner's heart. He's talking about re-entering the church and re-establishing fellowship with a worldly group of people that are truly converted that he loves and he will discipline. You understand the difference. This is very important. <clears throat> These things are not true conversion. And when you preach to others, you have to be clear. John Calvin said this, simplicity, clarity, accuracy, directness, good preaching, whether you're talking to your children or whether you're preaching to people, must be simple, clear, direct, and accurate. That's what is needed. I don't care whether you're in the, in, the, in the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, or the Chinese world, or the animistic world, or the atheistic world. Listen carefully. The two most important things for an influence in any culture is the character of your life and the content of your preaching. First of all, your life, you must be truly converted. What is true conversion? Turn quickly to the book of Acts. One simple verse, Acts chapter 20. There again we said the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Acts 20 verse 17. Said, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He's speaking to the church leaders. This is what he would say to us. And when they had come to him, verse 18, he said, verse, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time. Paul spent time with people. Serving the Lord, not with pride, but with humility, because he knew he was a testimony to the sovereign grace of God. And he did it with tears. That is, he was deeply attached to people. And he did it in the midst of trials. Verse 19, that came upon him through the plots of the Jews. But notice verse 20, Paul had courage. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. He didn't fear man, he feared God. He was willing to tell people the truth, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, no matter the response. Paul had spiritual courage by the grace of God. He feared God with a holy fear. And consequently, it says, he was willing to meet with him privately, one-on-one, -on -one, and to preach to them publicly. His ministry was full-orbed. He would talk to one or two, or he would preach to a whole group. What was his message? Verse 21. 
solemnly testifying. That is, he wasn't telling jokes. He wasn't telling stories. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, the universality of the message to all men. Notice what he says, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a simple definition of true conversion. True conversion has two parts. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice the prepositions, repentance toward God. That means you are leaving something and turning from something and you're turning toward God. Now, let's stop for a minute and just survey a few verses. You can write them down quickly to see if I can remember them. The centrality of preaching, excuse me, repentance in the message of Christ and in the apostles. Mark chapter 1, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is now at hand, he said, repent and believe the gospel. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must repent and you must believe the gospel. Luke chapter 5, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 15, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner. Is that Luke 15? Over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. Do you think that because the tower fell, that may be Luke 15, upon these that they were worse sinners than the others? I tell you no. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Jesus constantly preached the necessity of repentance. And when he rose from the dead, called his disciples together, he said, I'm sending you out, Luke 24, that you might preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And they were not disobedient, Acts chapter 2. What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Ghost. Now, where does repentance come from? Very quickly, look in the book of Acts chapter 5. What is repentance? It's a turning. It's a turning from sin, from self, from works, from obedience. It's a turning from your own religion, turning from idols to the living God. Acts chapter 5. Listen carefully. Well, now he has notice verse 30. God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you have put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one that God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior. Look at the verse to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is required of man, but it is a gift of God. Now listen carefully. You'll never get your understanding of salvation correctly unless you remember what our brother said this morning about man's condition. God commands men to do something that they cannot do. Because in the garden, man lost his ability to believe, but he did not lose his responsibility to believe. And when we preach to men, we don't preach to them what they can or can't do. We preach to them what they must do. We preach to them that they must repent. All through the New Testament, excuse me, the ministry of Jesus, he's telling people to do something they cannot do. Here's a man with a withered hand. What does he tell him to do? Stretch out your hand. He said, well, I've been trying to stretch out this hand for 30 years. He commanded him to do something he had no power to do. But with the command, the power came and it healed his hand and arm and he stretched it out. He told the man laying on the pallet, rise, take up your pallet and walk. The man had no ability physically to do that. But with the command, he infused physical power and healing 
into his lame legs and what God commanded him to do, which he could not do, God supplied the ability to do and respond by rising, by stretching forth, and by repenting. You understand what we're saying? So when we preach to men, we don't preach to them what they can do. We preach to them what they must do. What they must do. And whether it's repentance or whether it's faith, it is a gift of God. Hear me carefully, men. If you will clearly preach the message of the gospel and call men to repent and to turn from their idols, turn from their worship of idols, turn from Allah, turn from the Quran, turn from their good works, most will resist. Some will believe. But your responsibility is to scatter the seed and to water it with prayer. And in God's timing and in God's will, he will open hearts and cause them to receive the words that come from the word of God through your mouth. And so all through the book of Acts, you see God through the apostles telling men to repent. Acts 17, he's there at Mars Hill in Athens. God, having overlooked the time of ignorance, is now declaring to all men everywhere that they repent. And look quickly at Acts 24. We're talking about true conversion, two parts, repentance and faith. Paul is speaking to Felix. Now let's change that to Acts 26. Acts 26, Paul is speaking to Agrippa. Acts 26, Paul is giving his testimony. Verse 15, Paul been knocked to the ground on the Damascus road. Now he didn't want to believe in Jesus. He was persecuting the church. He had no interest in submitting to Christ. He was going this way in his own strength, in his own power, in his own hatred, and yet God in his sovereign grace and eternal love was coming this way. And when God came this way and Paul was going this way, God knocked him down. That is, he overcame his will and his stubborn nature and his religious pride and brought him down to the ground. And he said, notice verse 15, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only the things you have seen, but the things in which I will appear to you. Verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now notice carefully verse 18. To open their eyes. Then... They will turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sin. Notice the order here. He opens their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. That's Paul's commission. How did he describe that turning from darkness to light? Verse 19, so King Agrippa, I did not prove, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first, Jerusalem, and throughout the, all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles. Notice what he says, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to Repentance. Now you compare verse 18, open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light to verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God. What is repentance? It is a change of mind. It is a change of heart. It is a change in one's conscience regarding conviction of sin. It is a sorrow in the heart regarding uh, the sinfulness of sin, and it is finally a turning. 
It is a turning from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God. Hear me carefully. When we preach the gospel regarding the proper response, it's not that you were born in a Christian family. It's not that you know John 3.16. It's not that you had a physical healing. It's not that you have had an emotional experience. It's not that you've been baptized. It's not that you joined the church. It's not that you're trying to obey and do good works. God now overlooking the times of ignorance is declaring to all men everywhere to repent. You're telling them to do something they cannot do. God must open the heart, open their eyes. Paul is in Asia. He hears a call from Macedonia. Come over here and help us. He crosses over into Europe. He's at Macedonia, at Philippi. He's looking for the Macedonian man. He hadn't found him yet. But what does he find? He goes down by the riverside because he hears a bunch of women. Paul was willing to preach to women. And he preached to the women. One of them there was named Lydia, well-to-do woman, seller of purple fabrics from Thyatira, I believe. Now, what does it say happened to her? She opened her heart to receive Christ. Is that what it says? Read the text. And God opened her heart to receive the things that Paul was speaking. That opening of the heart, that opening of the eyes, that granting a new life is what the Bible calls regeneration or the new birth, the effectual calling and the new birth. Listen carefully. Can you raise the dead? What is our responsibility? Speak to the bones. God told Ezekiel, speak to the bones. Jeremiah said, Lord, can these bones live? <laughs> God asked him. He said, Lord, only you know what God tell him to do. Speak to the bones. That's your responsibility, brothers and sisters. Speak to the bones. The gospel that is the power of God and God may be pleased to open their heart and to grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24 or 25. Notice the sequence. With gentleness we are to speak to those that oppose if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. <coughs> now it is an activity of man because God has given him that gift, that inclination to see his sin in the light of who God is and then to begin to turn from sin to God. That is the nature of repentance. And what Paul says it is a universal message to Muslims, to Hindus, to Buddhists, to the Chinese, to the atheists. Not some new strategy, not some compromised, watered-down message in order, to, uh, uh, in order to make the gospel more appealing. We preach that righteous life, that sacrificial death, and that glorious resurrection, and that present exaltation, and then you call men to repent and to believe. Notice what it says back in Acts chapter 20 very quickly. <clears throat> Here's the question, brothers and sisters. Are you preaching a clear message of repentance? Here's a message closer to home and heart. Have you truly repented? Are you repenting? When Luke, Luke, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis 
on the door at Wittenberg. What was the number one thesis of the 95? God has said that the entirety of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance at its beginning and at its continuation. Brothers and sisters, have we truly repented and given up, as we heard this morning, any good works, any obedience, any self-righteousness? And if we turn from those things and we're clinging and hoping solely and wholly in that righteous life, that sacrificial death, and that glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only basis of our hope, and are we trusting in Him as we heard this morning? Acts chapter 20, verse 21 again. My Bible says he's solemnly testifying. That means it's a serious subject to both Jews and Greeks. It is universal in its application of repentance toward God. And number two, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you heard this morning the definition of true faith. It's understanding in the mind, it's assent and belief in the heart, and it's an entrustment of the life. That is the essence of saving faith. But notice the object. Notice the object in the verse, faith in, what does it say? Lord Jesus Christ. The whole man trusting the whole Christ. Lord, eternal deity, sovereign authority. Jesus, Savior, Redeemer. He called his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, the anointed one, the appointed Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king who speaks the word of God, who offers himself as a sacrifice and high priest, and who now reigns in heaven as a king. What is true conversion? It is the whole man throwing himself upon the whole Christ. We're not dividing the person or the offices of Christ. You take Christ in the totality of his person. You can't have him to save you from the guilt of sin and not reign over you as your king and your Lord. It's the whole Christ. And when we preach to people, we preach that reality. Let me show you the essence of that in an interesting illustration regarding the definition of true faith. John chapter 2. Now we're talking about the preacher's life and we're talking about the preacher's preaching and we're talking about the people to whom he's speaking. We clearly understand, believe, clearly preach true conversion to the people to whom we're speaking. John chapter 2. Notice toward the end of the chapter, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many, notice what it says, believed in him. As they observed his signs, which he was doing. But notice verse 24. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. He himself knew what was in man. Now, listen carefully. Verse 23, many believed. And verse 24, Jesus was not entrusting. Uh, New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, Those two words, same word. 23, many believed. But it was a superficial, temporary, emotional, intellectual, but not saving. Verse 25, verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not believing in them. He was not entrusting himself to them. Faith is an entrustment. Now, there can be a temporary faith and a temporary repentance. 
that can be a faith that is produced by man and a faith that comes from God. There is a repentance that comes from God and a temporary repentance that is performed by man. But hear me carefully. When God saves a man, He grants him the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now hear me carefully. That probably refers to the whole process of salvation of which faith is the condition. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Now I know I'm telling you something that you've heard many times before. But hearing it, understanding it, clearly speaking it, so that people can understand what you're saying. It says, when Jesus finished speaking these words, the Pharisees understood that he was speaking about them. Mm -hmm. Not about them, but about us. And when we preach, we need to be clear, direct, specific, and speak to the mind and the heart and the will and the conscience. But hear me carefully. You can't preach what you haven't experienced. Are you truly converted? Now, God converts people in different ways. Uh, if the Apostle Paul were sitting here and we said, uh, Paul, how were you converted? He'd say, follow me. Right here, uh, the Damascus Road, right here. It was the middle of the day. I was on my way to Damascus. I didn't want to believe in Jesus. I was persecuting the church. I hated Christ. I didn't want to receive and believe in the one true living God. I was trusting in my own righteousness that was found in the law outwardly. I was ceremonially blameless. But God, but God came. That's where I was converted. Uh, you asked Timothy. Timothy's sitting here. Hey, Timothy. Uh, when were you converted? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> what do you mean you're not sure? Well, uh, from a child, I've known the sacred scriptures. It led me to believe in the way of salvation. Now listen carefully. People are converted in different ways. But the question is, this moment, what is the foundation of our hope? As you heard this morning, is it a man in heaven and the righteousness that he performed on earth and the sacrifice that he offered on the cross and the vindication and justification that he experienced in the resurrection. And he say, my righteousness is in a man in heaven, not in my own righteousness, not in my own good works, not in my preaching, not in my ministry, not in my parents, not in my baptism, not in my obedience, not in my experience, not in my healing, but it's in a man in heaven. And I understand who he is and I believe it in my heart and I confess it with my mouth and I have entrusted my whole soul to him. Now, brethren, when you preach the gospel, there's only two religions in the world. There's only two religions in the world. Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican. Two religions. A religion of works, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, animist, Catholic, or the religion of the publican. Now that's a true sinner's prayer. Not John 3, not Revelation 3.20. The true sinner's prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was not even willing to lift up his eyes, but he stood at a far distance and he smote himself upon the breast and he said, Lord, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee came right up to the front. He trusted in his own righteousness. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I receive. Lord, I don't need mercy. I've earned my position and salvation in your sight. I have worked for my right standing in your sight. Give me what I have earned. Every religion in the world is a religion of works. We're preaching a religion of grace. A true sinner's prayer. Lord, I know who you are. And I understand who I am. And I understand I can't save myself. I have nothing to boast. I got no good works. I got no righteousness. I have no obedience. I've got nothing to bring but my sin and my shame. And I bring it at the foot of the cross. And I cast myself upon your mercy as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, he alone is my salvation. Let me carefully. Do you understand it? Do you believe it? Can you clearly preach it so that people understand it? I'll tell you one of the hardest things to get a man to let loose of, as we heard this morning, is his own self-righteousness. John Bunyan said this at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, which some of you perhaps have read. At the end of it, Pilgrim and his friend got there and they had the certificate that testified they had believed in Jesus Christ. But then after them came whom? It was, uh, it was, uh, who, uh, it was a, a presumptuous man that supposed he was a Christian. And he crossed the river of death in the boat, vain hope. And he got to the gate. And he had not a certificate. And they cast him away into the outer darkness and bunion in with these words. I saw there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Listen carefully. You are responsible to clearly and plainly teach to the people that you minister to. Whether you're talking to the guy on the shop there, giving him a track. There's darkness there. His heart is hardened. His will is bound. His conscience is defiled. His eyes are blinded. He does not and cannot understand. All you can do is give him the truth and then pray for him and to be a holy example before him. If you tell him Jesus can change your life and deliver you from idols, then you'll no longer be impatient. You'll no longer beat your wife. You'll no longer love money. And he sees your life having some of those same bad habits. It's not going to work. What you say and who you are must be the same thing. Men, we must be truly converted and we must clearly preach it so that the people can plainly understand it. Now we've got about 10 minutes left here. Any questions on that first point? We're talking about the preacher's life. And I want to mention five things. The first one is he must be truly converted. We talked about what true conversion was not. And we talked about what true conversion is. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We sought to define repentance as to its definition, its necessity, its source, and its direction toward God. Then we talked briefly about faith. What it is. Understanding in the mind, assent or belief in the heart, a confession with the mouth, entrustment of the life, and its source is a gift of God, and its object is the whole Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, and all that means. Any questions or comments on what we've said? Do you understand what we're saying about Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? Throw that verse out of your evangelistic endeavor. Preach the gospel. Yes. When you're sharing the gospel, when do you dust your feet off and move on? Only God knows that, brother. 
lot of people would have never approached the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. Our responsibility is to be a godly example, clearly communicate the truth, pray for them fervently, and then go back again and again and again. And yes, there's certain times when the Spirit of God will impress upon you, you need to move in another direction, you need to just pray for this man and continue to uh, scatter the seed in other directions. But look, the hardness of the field and the hardness of the heart is no indication as to whether we ought to quit preaching. Remember, only God can raise the dead. Only God can deliver a Muslim from his hope in that Quran, from his praying to Allah, from his five practices every day, from his own good works. Only God can deliver the Hindu from giving up his idols and his good works, and the Buddhist from giving up his morality, and the atheist from just giving up the world, the animist to give up the spirits. Only God can do that, brothers and sisters. I've been trying to preach this book for 53 years. And there's one thing I'm persuaded of. My context has been the same context as Brother Evan Burns. Atheistic Chinese. Radical Muslims. Idolatrous Hindus. Demonically infested Buddhists. And if I didn't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners, I'd be back in America, retired. But God told Paul, don't give up in wicked Corinth because I have many people in this city. Your job is to scatter the seed. Yes, we must at times move on and leave others to God and continue to scatter the seed. But hear me carefully. Our hope is not in our persuasive speech. Our hope is not in our intellectual arguments. Our hope is not in our gift. It's not in our education. Our hope isn't even in our enthusiasm, not how loud our voice is or how soft our voice is. Our hope is in the power of God through the gospel. But we got to preach a clear gospel. And God willing, in the next several days, we want to cover some of those things again that we might understand right doctrine. Good man with a bad message produces confusion. A bad man with a good message is a contradiction. We want to be good men and good women with the right message. Any other question? Yes. We usually should accept people on a credible profession of faith based on a simple understanding of the gospel and some initial evidence of a changed heart. You're not looking for a man that can tell you the difference between foreknowledge and predestination. You're not looking for someone that can tell you the difference between total depravity and moral inability. You're not looking for someone to tell you the difference between regeneration and conversion. We're not looking for someone to tell us the difference between justification and sanctification or between perseverance and eternal security. We're looking for people that in their baby talk can tell you they've trusted Christ and they want to follow Him. You don't hit people in the head with a Bible and expect you're going to get a theological answer. My hope is built on nothing else than Jesus Christ in His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's emotion.
I wholly trust in Jesus' name. Brethren, life is short. Eternity is coming. I'm an old man. I can see the river from here. And I got a few days left. And God told me to teach faithful men that are able to teach others. That's two requirements, men. Faithful, that's character. Able to teach, that's gift and understanding of truth so that they can teach others. And Peter said, it's only right for me to remind you of these things even though you already know them and are established in them so that after my depart, you can bring it to mind and by implication, clearly tell others. That's our responsibility. Well, let's pray. Father, what a privilege to be here, to gather together, to think about the things of your kingdom. Other men are roaming these streets, seeking after money, security in this life. We're no better. We would be out there with them apart from your grace. You found us. You opened our heart. You gave us the gift of repentance and faith. And we just ask for grace and strength to clearly understand, to truly believe, to faithfully follow, and to powerfully preach this basic truth of repentance toward God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. Help my dear brothers and sisters, grant us fresh courage that you will accomplish your work in the midst of a sinful world by the power of the gospel. Strengthen us then to that end as we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. amen. Well, amen.